0: Well, it's great to be with you today no matter where you are right now, whether it's our Lincoln Park campus, our acoustic service, or, uh, or online. We are now three weeks away from opening the doors at our brand new Montclair campus, uh, which, as you probably know, is going to be right on the campus of Montclair State University. And let me just clarify something. This, is, this new campus in Montclair is truly going to be part of the chapel. So we're one church in multiple locations. And one of the ways that we're maintaining that unity is at the Montclair campus, the teaching that will be there will be the same exact teaching as here. So just like we do at our acoustic service right now, uh, the teaching part of the service will be brought in on high definition video. And I've actually heard that the preacher is more impressive on screen than he is in real life. So it's just, just a rumor that I've heard. So uh, if you live anywhere near Montclair, just really encourage you to check that out uh, starting on April 30th. Uh, It's going to be a really exciting step. So we've been taking the season of Lent to focus in on the final week of Jesus's life leading up to the cross. And we've been noticing that the things that Jesus said and the things that he did during that week actually have the the potential to change the way that we view some of the most important things in, in life. Uh, which is so important because some of our biggest problems in life come when we are looking at the big things in life in a a defective or a dysfunctional way. Uh, For example, today we're going to be talking about the way that we view suffering. For some reason, I remember this comment that a friend of mine made uh, when we were back in middle school. We were playing basketball in his backyard, and he got hurt while we were playing. And I I don't even remember. He's twisted his ankle or he skinned his knee or something. And so he fell to the ground, and I still remember he said, oh, God is punching me. And I said, what, God is punching you? And he said, no, God is punishing me, uh, which is actually not that different, right? And I said, well, what, what, what is he punishing you for? And he said, I don't know, something I did wrong, obviously. And I, I, for some reason, I've just thought of that conversation so many times. My friend had this view of suffering that when something bad happens to you, God is getting you back. God is, God is sort of evening the score, almost like a karma view of life, right? Like you, you get back what, what you put in. Um, and maybe that view of suffering is harmless when it comes to, you know, a twisted ankle. It doesn't affect you that much. But what if you hold that view of suffering when, when the cancer diagnosis comes in? Or what if that's your view of God and of life when your spouse is killed in a car accident? How does that affect your life? You know, the reality is suffering is such a part of this life that the way that we process it, the way that we look at it has a a huge effect on our lives. So it's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, let's take a look at the passage. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53, and it's such a long passage that we're actually going to skip a couple of parts as we go through it, but let me, let me just set the scene. Uh, we're late in Mark 14 here. Jesus and his disciples have just finished the Last Supper. Um, they've walked out of the, the place where they had the Last Supper into the garden where Jesus prayed and wrestled with this thing that he was about to to, uh, go through with. The soldiers came and arrested him in the garden and his disciples scattered. So this is very early now. Uh, It's past midnight, very early on Friday morning, probably one or two o'clock in the morning. Here's what happened. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, "'Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you?' But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, "'Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One?' "'I am,' said Jesus, "'and you will see the Son of Man "'sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One "'and coming on the clouds of heaven.' The high priest tore his his clothes. "'Why do we need any more witnesses?' he asked. "'You have heard the blasphemy. "'What do you think?' They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Skip down to chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Then skip down to verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of God. This was a night of unthinkable suffering for Jesus. And, you know, in some ways, his suffering was unique. What he went through that night and then, and then later that morning on the cross uh, was unlike anything that anybody had ever gone through and, and anything that anyone's gone through since then. So in a sense, uh, we can't relate to the suffering of Jesus at all. But, but in another sense, we can Because I don't care who you are in your life, there will be suffering. And the Bible uh, says that Jesus left us an example so that we should follow in his steps. So from watching and, uh, and just taking in the suffering of Jesus that night, Um, Here's what we learn about suffering, at least four things that we're going to talk about. Embrace it, don't be defined by it, remember who oversees it, and look beyond it. So four things Jesus shows us about suffering and teaches us about going through our own suffering. Embrace it, don't be defined by it, remember who oversees it, and then learn to look beyond it. So first, let's talk about embracing our suffering. Does that sound strange? It probably sounds a little bit weird, right? Because usually in life, we do everything we can to avoid suffering, right? Um, Last Sunday, a week week ago today, the pastors of the chapel played the high school students in a friendly game of basketball. Um, I play basketball about once a year. So any guesses what I did before that game? Starts with an A. Advil. Lots of Advil. Because I don't like pain, and I knew it was coming, and so you know I braced for it. So I took steps to avoid the pain. By the way, it helped a lot. Um, It also helped that we beat them, but I don't like to brag. (laughs) But, But that's human nature, right? When we see the potential of suffering, it's normal and it's natural and healthy to try to avoid pain. Remember when even Jesus prayed right before this in the garden, and the essence of his prayer was, Father, is there any way that this cup can pass for me? Of uh, Jesus was trying to avoid the suffering. So when I say embrace suffering, I don't mean that we should ask for it or that we should have some sick pleasure in suffering. But when God didn't change the plan, when Jesus knew, no, this really is God's will, he embraced it. And what I mean by that is he didn't run from it, you know, try to try to get out of it. He chose to willingly go through it. So what would it mean for you and me to embrace the suffering in our lives like Jesus did? At least two things. First of all, I think it means that we should expect it to happen. Just, just expect it. Um, my dad always told me that so much of life is based on whether we have the right expectations. And so when this happened to Jesus, and this wasn't the first suffering in his life, he wasn't surprised by it. He knew it was part of the deal. And in his teaching, Jesus repeatedly told his followers, you should expect because you're human and because you follow me, you should expect to suffer. Sometimes I am shocked, although I've seen it so many times, the shock wears off, but, but frustrated and annoyed by some of the teaching of American Christianity that seems to t- contradict what Jesus says here. Because sometimes you turn on a TV preacher and it sounds like, well, Jesus came to make my life as pain-free as possible. He came to make it successful and prosperous and give me my best life and it's gonna be awesome. And Jesus... Didn't talk like that, right? Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Jesus said, you know what? People hated me. So if you follow me, a lot of people are going to hate you as well. So from following Christ, we should expect some pushback and some opposition and some pain. Besides that is the fact that we live in in a fallen and broken world, right? Second Corinthians four says outwardly, we are wasting away. We reach our physical peak about age 18 and it's just all downhill from there right? And he, can I get a witness to that? It's just true, right? Advil helps, but Advil doesn't take away all the pain. Last week I visited somebody in the hospital and he was in a lot of pain. He was nearing the end of his life and his family was gathered around and, and crying and trying to, to spend their last moments with him. I came home and I talked to my wife and I said, you know, honey, that, that's going to be us one day. It's going to be you. It's going to be me with, you know, people gather, hopefully people gathered around, you know, the hospital bed. It's not a question of if, you know, maybe we can avoid that. It's just a question of when and and how exactly it's going to happen. We don't like to think about that, but outwardly we are wasting away. So both because of our humanness in a fallen world, and then in a specific way, because of our connection with Jesus, who suffered in specific ways, we should expect that. But let's get a little more hopeful. I think part of embracing suffering also means that we learn how to leverage it. Um, When Jesus was going through his trials and he was being tortured and abused, he realized because he was going through that, um, good things were gonna happen. It was gonna result in good. I remember a few years ago when uh, it was actually worthwhile to watch the New York Knicks play basketball. I don't know if some of you guys remember way back when. But one of the guys I loved watching was a guy named Landry Fields. He was a starter for the Knicks. He was there with Jeremy Lin a few years ago. Um, he then got traded uh, to the Toronto Raptors. Then he got injured. Then he came back for a while, and then he got injured again. Then he got injured again. If you're a pro athlete, it's your worst nightmare right? because it just means that you know, this, this is your, your whole livelihood. Before all the injuries, he considered himself a Christian. But over the years, he had let himself drift away from God. And when the injuries started happening, he began to pay attention. And I want to just read you a few of his words. He said, through suffering, God gives us humility. When I first started getting injured, I prayed, God, leave it up to me and leave me alone. Now I pray, thank you, Lord, for doing this and driving me back to you. Suffering magnifies Christ to me and in me and through me. I'm thankful for my injured elbow, hand and hip because they make me depend on God in a way that I never would have without them. I mean, that's hard won wisdom. He realized his pro sports career might be, and might be over and it is. I mean, he just kept having too many injuries. He no longer plays anymore, but he's okay with that because it was through his suffering that he realized it's actually better to have a strong faith and a weak body than the other way around. So nobody enjoys suffering, but because of what Jesus has done, um, we can embrace it. Second thing Jesus teaches about suffering is don't be defined by it. During that night, Jesus was treated in ways that no person should ever be treated. Um, He was spit on. He was mocked. He was beaten with sticks. A a crown of thorns was pressed into his, his scalp. It's hard to wrap your mind around the indignity. In his book called The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey refers to this memoir written by an author named Pierre von Passen about uh, this man's life in the years leading up to World War II. And in that memoir, he talks about something that happened one night when an elderly Jewish rabbi was arrested by Nazi stormtroopers and dragged into police headquarters. So this is Philip Yancey's description of that event, and it's hard to listen to, but, but we should. He writes, the captors of the rabbi decided to have some fun with him. They stripped him naked and commanded that he preach the sermon he had prepared for the coming Sabbath in the synagogue. The rabbi asked if he could wear his yarmulke, and the Nazis, grinning, agreed. It added to the joke. The trembling rabbi proceeded to deliver in a raspy voice his sermon on what it means to walk humbly before God, all the while being poked and prodded by the hooting Nazis. And then Yancey says this, When I read the gospel accounts of the imprisonment, torture, and execution of Jesus, I think of that naked rabbi standing humiliated in a police station. I still cannot fathom the indignity, the shame endured by God's son on earth, stripped naked, flogged, spat on, struck in the face, garlanded with thorns. What does that do to a person? I mean, obviously the intent of his abusers was to um, demean him, and belittle him and cheapen who Jesus was, right? That's what they were trying to do. They wanted to break his spirit, but, but they weren't successful with Jesus. Why, why not? Why weren't they able to do that? And I think the answer is because he knew who he was. It didn't matter how many times they falsely accused him of things or tried to intimidate him, it didn't touch the core of his identity. Jesus had heard that voice of his father from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, in him I'm well pleased. It says in John chapter 13, right before the washing of the feet, that Jesus knew that he had come from the Father and that he was returning to the Father. So his identity was completely secure. Here's the amazing thing, that through a relationship with this one who knew who he was, we can have that same kind of inner security. Because when we are in Christ, when our trust is in him, the Father looks at us the same way that he looked at Jesus. He looks at, at you and me, and he says, this is my beloved daughter. In her, I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. Um, I know that in reality, you might be thinking, yeah, but it's hard to do that. When, when I'm being talked down to, when I'm being you know, emotionally abused, it's hard to do that. I know. And that's why we need to surround ourselves with voices of truth, of the right reading and the right music and the right community that affirms the truth of what God says about us, that we are God's beloved children and nothing that anyone does to us can touch the core of who we are. That's what Christ gives us as his gift because life is hard, right? And sometimes people try to devalue or to cheapen or to demean us, maybe for our faith in Christ, maybe for some other reason. Um, Don't let it define you, know who you are. It's one of the great gifts of the gospel. Third thing, when we suffer, Jesus teaches us to remember who oversees it. Um, In the passage we read today, you probably noticed that there were two main main power groups that were involved in in putting Jesus on trial, right? So first, he stood before the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish ruling council, and they convicted him of blasphemy, and they all said, he's worthy of death, right? He should get the death penalty. The problem was... They were part of the Roman Empire, and no religious group had the authority to, to, uh, to, uh, to come to a, a legal verdict of, of guilt or to pronounce the death penalty. I mean, they could recommend it, but they didn't have the authority to do it, so they turned Jesus over to the Romans. And they were hoping, the religious leaders were hoping they could convince the government leaders that Jesus really is a menace and he should be wiped out and he should be eliminated. So Jesus went from the first trial in front of the religious authorities to the second trial before the government leaders led by Pontius Pilate who was the the governor of that local region. So the religious leaders had some power and some control, right? The government leaders had some power and control, but here's the thing. All the while, Jesus realized who was really in control. Back in the garden when Jesus was arrested, here came this mob of people, combination of government leaders and religious leaders with torches and swords and clubs. And look what Jesus said. It's a very interesting line. Mark 14, verse 48. He said, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me. Now listen to this. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. What do you mean by that? I think he meant that even though these people were choosing to do what they did to come and arrest him, you know, that was their choice to do that. Little did they know their actions were carrying out God's plans. So they, they weren't trying to do this, but scripture was being fulfilled through them. Hmm. Did you realize that that theme, freely chosen human action, somehow unknowingly being part of God's plan? You realize that theme runs all through scripture, all the way back in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. Joseph's brothers were so annoyed with him that they sold him into slavery, Um, wound up going to Egypt. Little did they know that that decision, even though it was wrong, it was an evil thing to do, would be used by God for good through this bizarre sequence of events, Joseph wound up in a very high position in Egypt. He wound up rescuing the very brothers who tried to get rid of him, right? And then in the last chapter of Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, he says to his brothers, "Hey, don't worry about it because what you meant for evil, God meant for good." How does God do that? I don't know. But he does all the time. In the book of Acts, So shortly after the passage we're in today, after Jesus left this earth, the Christians were getting pushed around and intimidated by those same two power groups, the religious authorities and the government authorities, and they prayed this prayer. Listen to this prayer in Acts 4, verse 27. They say to God, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Listen to this, verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Same thing, right? These human leaders took action. Little did they know they were carrying out God's plan all along. Let me quote Philip Yancey one more time because he he uses an illustration of this concept that if you've been around me for a while, you've probably heard me use before, but it's worth repeating. Um, Back in high school, Philip Yancey says he was a pretty good chess player, but then he graduated high school, he put the game away for years. Years later, he had the opportunity to play against a truly accomplished chess player. And listen to what he writes about his chess match. When we played a few matches, I learned what it's like to play against a master. Any classic offense I tried, he countered with a classic defense. If I turned to more risky, unorthodox techniques, he incorporated my bold forays into his winning strategies. Although I had complete freedom to make any move I wished, I soon reached the conclusion that none of my strategies mattered very much. His superior skill guaranteed that my purposes inevitably ended up serving his own. Perhaps God engages our universe in much the same way. He grants us freedom to rebel against its original design, but even as we do so, we end up ironically serving his eventual goal of restoration. If I accept that blueprint, a huge step of faith, I confess, it transforms how I view both good and bad things that happen. Good things such as health, talent, money, I can present to God as offerings to serve his purposes. And bad things too. disability Poverty, family dysfunction, failures can be redeemed as the very instruments that drive me to God. End of quote. Does that answer all of our questions about human free will and divine sovereignty? I don't think so. But it reminds us that we have this God who can take the most evil intentions of people and the most seemingly random events of suffering, and he can redeem those things for his plan. Remember, remember who's overseeing this whole deal it leads directly to the last thing that Jesus teaches us about suffering, which is to look beyond it. Look beyond it. I think the main reason Jesus endured what happened that night was that he was able to look beyond it. As horrific as it was, he knew that it was temporary and that something better was coming. Hebrews 12.2 says, this is an exhortation to us, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So how did Jesus endure? It was for the joy that was set before him. He knew that because of what he was doing that day, joyful things would take place. And the question is, in our own suffering, do we believe that? And I'm not saying that our suffering is accomplishing the same thing Jesus' suffering did. Jesus was the only one who went to the cross, right? So his suffering is in many ways unique. But do we believe that our suffering is temporary and that something better is coming? Because I think sometimes what makes bad times so bad and what makes them become depression is we don't think that there's ever going to be another reality. This is going to be it forever. So do we believe, for example, Psalm 30, verse 5, that says, weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning? Do we believe 1 Peter 5.10 that says, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast? Do we believe our current suffering, whatever it is, is temporary, and that something better is coming? Any longtime New York Jets fans here remember, speaking of suffering, right? Do you remember, uh, remember this guy, Dennis Bird? Played in the late 80s, early 90s, defensive tackle, defensive end, monster of a player. Unfortunately, he is not remembered for his play. He's remembered for something that happened in a game in 1992. He took a terrible hit on the field, and he wound up paralyzed. And I still remember this. Back in 1992, I was living in Dallas. I remember reading in Sports Illustrated an article about him and his recovery. And the reporter who wrote the article said he went into his hospital room and he noticed that on the ceiling above his bed, somebody had taped a piece of notebook paper, like a piece of loose-leaf paper. And on the paper, somebody had handwritten the words to Romans 8.18. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So every time he woke up, um, he would look up and he would see those words. Um, he, was, he was a man of faith, and, and he really believed that even though his current situation was, was really bad, that God had something in store that would make everything he was going through just pale in comparison. So it's what kept him going through the recovery and through the rehab. Um, never played football again. But to the amazement of many people, he did walk again. Um, he wound up traveling the country to share his story. He became uh, a successful high school football coach and over the years inspired thousands of people. It's Kind of a great ending, right, to the story? It's not the end of the story uh, because in this world you will have trouble and outwardly we're wasting away. Um, Last fall, last October, just about six months ago, Dennis Byrd was driving on a country road in Oklahoma near his home. A 17-year-old driver swerved into his lane, hit him head on, and he was killed instantly. The tragedy for his family is unspeakable, right? And you go, God, how could you let that happen? And the honest answer that we have to say is, I don't know. But I know that we serve this God who takes the sufferings of this world and in the big picture says, those are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in you. And really, if we're honest, we have to say the end of the story, the glory that's being talked about is not usually in this life. And Dennis Bird knew it, even though he had a second chance in some ways in this life, the real promises of God don't pay off in this life, they pay off in eternity. So is there suffering in your life? Of course there is. And if there's not, there's gonna be. Um, believe me when I say God is, not, God is not punishing you or punching you. He definitely has not abandoned you. So when the suffering comes, if it's, if it's what God has put before you, um, would you embrace it like Jesus did? Um, don't let it define you. If the suffering involves persecution or being talked badly about, don't let it define you. Remember the whole time who's overseeing the process. Um, and as you're in it, Look beyond it. Know that God has something in store that is so much better than you could ever imagine. Would you rise for a closing prayer? Next Sunday is gonna be uh, just an awesome, awesome celebration of... The resurrection of jesus so we're we're getting ready for that and we're praying for that i want to just encourage you something that was mentioned in the announcements in your bulletin there's there's two of those those cards one is to you know to put in your fridge or somewhere you'll see it the other one is just to think of someone in your life that god has put in your life that you want to be here next week or maybe you want their kid to be at the egg hunt um, or, or, or maybe even Good Friday if they're, if they're a believer and they would really benefit from the, from the Good Friday service. Would you think and pray about who that person is? Um, or maybe just carry with you and, and when you see someone say, you know, I think you might, you might love this um, and trust that God's going to guide you to the right person. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we just acknowledge the, the reality that we're living in this broken world and outwardly, Lord, we are... We are wasting away, and, and, and it's not just our physical bodies, Lord. We see a terrorist act in Sweden. We see a bombing of an Egyptian Christian church this morning. We see Syrian government using chemical weapons against its own people. The place is so messed up. Lord, I pray that just as Jesus did, we would be fully present in this world, that we would face the suffering that you've put in our path, but that we would know and that we'd be messengers to people that suffering doesn't have the last word. Lord, I pray that we would be carriers of hope, that we'd be givers of comfort in the midst of the suffering. Lord, I pray that as we go out of here today, we would represent Jesus really well by the Spirit of God that's in us. We ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you're suffering something and you just need someone to pray for you, prayer counselors are up front. They'd love to spend some time.